So if you have your Bibles, open them with me to Psalm 22. As we begin this morning a two-part study in this most important song of David, starting today and ending on resurrection morning, Psalm 22. And though it is long, I'm going to begin by reading the entire psalm for you to set this in context. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my salvation are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I call by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you rescued them. To you they cried out and were granted escape. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They smack their lip. They wag their head saying, commit yourself to Yahweh. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me out of the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for distress is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouths at me as a lion that tears and roars. I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots." But you, O Yahweh, be not far off. O my strength, hasten to my help. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will surely recount your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you seed of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you seed of Israel. For he has not despised and he has not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. Of you is my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise Yahweh. May your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is Yahweh. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Their seed will serve him. It will be recounted about the Lord to the coming generation. 
They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done it. An amazing scripture, an amazing song of David to us. As you know, this Friday we commemorate what Christians have called Good Friday for early as the first century. It's called Good not because of the wholesomeness of that day, not because of any absence of evil or alleviation of pain. No, this Friday is called Good Friday because it's a day where we as believers remember the moment where our Lord Jesus Christ was nailed upon the cross, where he suffered and gave up his life before a crowd of onlookers as an atonement, a sacrifice to God for all the sins of all who believe. That's what makes this day good. Harold Horner, in his book, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, lays out an extensive argument from both history and astronomy that concludes that the execution of the Son of God occurred on Nisan 14, according to the Jewish calendar, in the year A.D. 33, which translated means this Friday, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ Christ took place exactly 1,990 years ago this week. Which means it was 1,990 years ago when Jesus Christ quoted the words that we have just read from Psalm 22. There on the cross, hanging between two criminals, hearing the mockery of those before him in the crowd, the Lord's mind was filled with the lyrics of Psalm 22. Almost 2,000 years ago, our Savior, as he struggled upon the cross, was musing on these words. Most likely, Jesus had learned Psalm 22 as a child because Jewish children in biblical times grew up singing psalms. In fact, Alfred Edersheim, in his book, Sketches of Jewish Social Life, says that as the children would go many times to the temple in Jerusalem and they would hear the Levites sing and the Levite children sing at the same time, he notes that the Jewish child knew many of these words. They had been the earliest songs he had heard, almost his first lesson when clinging as a toff or a child to his mother. In addition to that, it seems that Jesus knew more than just even the lyrics of Psalm 22, but he most likely knew the melody associated with Psalm 22 as well. I say that because unlike some psalms, this psalm has a song that it was associated with it and was to be sung as it is recorded in the superscription of the psalm. It was a tune, if you look back at the very beginning of Psalm 22, it was a tune known by the name of A Jileft Hashahar, the melody that we have lost, but a melody that was well known to the people in which it was written. Translated, those words mean doe of the dawn or deer of the morning. Because it was a well known tune, some throughout the years have actually used this example as grounds to permit modern songwriters to set words of scripture to secular music. Because this song was just that, a secular song. Some have said that the doe of the dawn represents the sufferer being likened to a deer pursued by hunters in the early morning, literally at the dawn of day, 
or that while a doe or deer suggests the idea of a meek, innocent sufferer, the addition of mourning denotes relief that was obtained. Martin Luther believed it referred to Christ himself hunted through the night and killed at dawn. Regardless of the meaning of the title of the song, it was to be sung according to Matthew and Mark, and yet Jesus never sang the tune on that day from the cross. Instead, the gospel accounts tell us that he screamed it. Hours before in the upper room, the Bible tells us that Jesus sang a hymn, And now we are told that he cried out in a loud voice this song of David. It seems as if Jesus had learned this psalm in both Hebrew and Aramaic. For again, both Matthew and Mark's gospel accounts his cry of Psalm 22 verse 1 in Aramaic, the common language of the Jews at the time. Jesus said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And though Jesus spoke other words, words at Calvary, these are the only words that Matthew and Mark record that Jesus spoke from the cross. And because of that, Psalm 22 has traditionally been seen as a messianic psalm, a psalm of prophetic proportions, and have always viewed this psalm through the eyes of that particular perspective. And though it's said to be a song of David, as we see in the very beginning of the superscript, the choir director, a psalm of David, it is quick to point out that never, David, was he ever in a situation or a tragedy as intense as the one that we see recorded here. Therefore, this psalm was, they say, never really about David, even though that's what the text says, It was always about the Son of God who was to come. But that's not how Jesus learned this psalm. And that's not how his mother taught him this psalm. And that's not how those who knew Psalm 22 in his day would have understood it. So to study Psalm 22, we have to first go back in history. Further back than the 1990 years that marks the moment that Jesus spoke these words from Calvary. No, to study Psalm 22, we have to go back another thousand years before that fateful day to another fateful day when the king of Israel felt the intense abandonment of God as well. Because I want to approach this psalm not only in the light of Christ's crucifixion, but as one commentator records, by understanding its long history of meaning in the community of faith before Jesus knew it or used it, we're going to look at this psalm, I think, in a way that's going to be very helpful. To begin, it's clear that Psalm 22 is the first of the greatest of the passional psalms. According to the United Bible Society's Greek New Testament, Psalm 22 is referred to some 24 times in the New Testament. Three of the four direct quotations listed and 14 of the 20 allusions and parallels are found within the narratives of Jesus' passion and his crucifixion, which demonstrates to us that clearly, even from the earliest date possible, Psalm 22 was used to understand the death of Christ in the early church. So, So much so that some people in the early church actually called Psalm 22 the fifth gospel. But before the church was born, 
before the Lord Jesus came to earth, for almost a thousand years before the crucifixion, Psalm 22 was understood as the song of David, a song of suffering. It applied immediately to David and then immediately to the greater David, the Messiah himself. And with that in your mind, and I hope it is in your mind, I want to walk through this psalm with you verse by verse, both this morning and next Lord's Day morning as well. And by doing that, I want to place before you why this particular portion of Scripture was so deeply embedded in the human mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. So much so that at his greatest point of earthly suffering, that it was this psalm that flooded his thoughts above all other thoughts. We're going to walk through the first half of this psalm today by by noticing what are just the themes of the lyrics that we have here. I want you to notice this morning how David moves in and out of this emotional logic, the emotional logic that seems to overwhelm him by how he addresses the different things that grip his heart as those themes occur to him. And then we're going to make some comments along the way as we see these unfold. And I just pray that as we contemplate the cross that cast its shadow over every single verse and every one of the themes that we're going to study that we understand not only the prophetic sense of the psalm, but also the reason that our Lord was so consumed with it as he hung on the cross. So the first theme, if you're taking notes, the first theme that we're going to see expressed here is the silence of God is realized. The silence of God is realized, and we see that in verses 1 and 2. David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my salvation are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I call by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. I think it's important to say that there comes a time in the life of every single believer when we've come face to face with the fact that God is silent. It's not that God seems silent, that God does not answer, that regardless of the situation, whether it is as common as financial distress or strain or as as cataclysmic as family loss, God seems to be deaf. There's a time when God's silence is not noticed. There's a time when the time that lapses between the request offered to God and the fulfillment needed from God that is so clouded and blurred with distractions that his lack of answering seems unnoticeable. Though we pray for assistance, we also are so consumed with activity, we're so consumed with the daily ins and outs of our life, though we pray for comfort, we are still caught up in this just never-grinding situation of our existence. Though our hearts hurt and our energy wanes, we still must wake up and suit up and put our best foot forward and, and, and wave at the neighbors and smile at the mailman. But over time... As this continues, the once silence becomes 
a bit deafening. And once the check fails to come and the MRI is delayed and the pain begins to grow, we start to notice that all the sweat and the tears and the aching knees and empty mailboxes wake us up to the fact that God isn't intervening. So the silence of God is realized. We can't be 100% certain what the historical context was of David's circumstances, but the fact that he was moved to say that it was so intense in his life that he felt as if God had forsaken him tells us it was life-faltering. It was mind-boggling. Whatever the circumstances that we might imagine them to be, the cause of these words, I would just add to them, was more, more than we could understand, more than we're privileged to understand. We cannot grasp what it might have been that moved David to say what he said. To be forsaken, just to be clear, means to be abandoned, to be left in a time of great need, to have your greatest hope in the rescue of the only one who can deliver you, only to find that they are silent, that there is no response, that knowing that you are in the very depths of your greatest despair, they choose not to visit your door. They choose not to pick up the phone. They choose not to intervene. They have have the means and the power to change the course of your greatest fear coming to fruition, and yet they will not speak on your behalf. And so they just let nature take its course. It's the patient waiting for the doctor's approval to be granted, only to be told he never called. It's the custody battle that hangs on the testimony of the one witness who can alter the trajectory of your entire future, who never shows up and whose statement is never heard. It is the promise of deliverance and safe travel from a wartime commander to his only platoon who longs to return home only to find the invasion has arrived and the enemy has advanced. It's the cry of a heartbroken parent for the bone marrow transplant of a little child that is forgotten or erased and the unspeakable silence that covers your speech when they ask what's next. This in so many words was the experience of David. And whether it was caused by a betrayal of his own family or the assassination plot of his dearest allies or some non-recorded event that never made it into Scripture, the realization, this realization of God's silence struck him like a ton of bricks. More than what it seems to be the greatest moment of his need was the thought that his God was silent. Yes, I am in need. Yes, I wait patiently. Yes, my my entire body is caught up in in the pain like Job. And yet the biggest realization is you don't talk to me. When the Lord Jesus Christ hung on the cross with the weight of all the sin, whoever would believe 
past, present, and future squarely upon his divine frame. These are the words he drew from. These were the only words in our Lord's mind that properly fit what was transpiring in his holy heart. In fact, this verse is the only verse, verse 1, of the entire psalm, Psalm 22, that our Lord speaks of. Though there are allusions of Psalm 22 elsewhere in this account, this is the only section, verse 1, that our Lord muttered with his own mouth as if he claimed them for his very own. Those words were his words when he spoke them. On that cross so many thousands of years ago with his heart being broken and his sacrifice being accomplished, Jesus' mind instantly gravitates to Psalm 22. And it's at this point in history that he cries out to his father as my God, my God, the one who has abandoned me to die. Theologians call this utterance both a mystery and a miracle. It is said that this moment is the only time of which we have recorded that Jesus did not address God as Father. It is said because the Son has taken sin upon Himself that the Father turned His back. We are told that this mystery is so great and so immeasurable that the great Martin Luther is said to have gone into seclusion for a long time trying to understand it and came out as confused as when he began. In a way, I believe it is impossible. It is impossible for us to understand the God-man was separated from God for a brief time at Calvary, not in his deity, but in his relationship, in his communion, as the ferocious wrath of the Father poured out on the sinless Son whose matchless grace became sin for those who believe in Him, His matchless grace. Perhaps that's why Jesus identified so much with David in verse 2. Perhaps He did identify that He too had called out during the days of passion, Oh my God, I call by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Perhaps Jesus, too, had prayed fervently these words. He had prayed the night before the cross during his visit to the Garden of Gethsemane. He had pleaded with the Father to let this cup of crucifixion to pass, sweating great drops of blood, we are told. But he received no answer from the Father. Only an angel sent from heaven. Verse 2 was not in his divine mouth. Only the beginning of verse 1. Verse 1b is a difficult translation, more easily understood. Actually, as David's saying, why do you remain so far away from me and refuse to help me or even listen to my anguished cries? Translation that we have is obviously obscured from that. Jesus only speaks of the question of abandonment. It's here that David now moves in and out of this emotional logic and he 
is gripped in his heart to find another topic, another theme as this prayer unfolds. First, from the silence of God being realized. Now, the second theme, the second theme before us is the salvation of God is remembered. We go from the silence of God being realized to the salvation of God being remembered. And we see that in verses 3 and 5. Yet, David says, you are holy, enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you rescued them. To you, they cried out and were granted escape. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. It has been well said, I believe, that this particular psalm is characterized by two types of poetic movement. It's a series of alternating shifts between upward and downward negative and and positive feelings. Uh, This is the first shift that you would notice in that emotional unfolding of these events. It's so beautifully marked by that word in the beginning of verse 3, yet. Yet. So the psalmist says, David, you are distant, yet I know this of you. You are silent to me right now, God, yet this is also true of you. You you don't seem to answer the greatest cry of my heart. You seem mute. You seem distant and a million miles away. And yet you have done so for me before such great and glorious things that I must remember above all things that you are always faithful to who you are. And the attribute of God here cited by David is his holiness. His holiness, his complete otherness, his uniqueness, his distinctiveness. He is, Scripture tells us, the Holy One, Isaiah 57, 15. There is no one like him, Isaiah 45, 5. He is incomparable, He is incomparably holy, Isaiah 6, 3. There is no one like him in heaven and on earth. And because he is so faithful and because he is so unlike any other living or uncreated or created thing, his people praise him for his rescue based on history past. In fact, David says the praises, verse 3b, are so numerous, get this, that God is said to sit enthroned on them meaning that the throne upon which God sits is comprised of the praises of Israel. His throne is not a throne of gold. It's a throne of praise. And what are these praises for? His salvation, his temporal, not spiritual, but here his earthly physical rescue of his people from old. To remember Moses, to remember that it was Moses that led the people through the Red Sea, to remember that it was Daniel as he was lowered into the lion's den and the words of the king saying, may your God to whom you serve continually rescue you, to remember Jonah who realized in the belly of the fish that it was God who rescues and serves and saves and then after three days is vomited back onto dry ground. It was Rahab and how the order was given to destroy everything and everybody in Jericho except Rahab and her family. 
When the city is destroyed and the population within it, Rahab is left in her house with her family, and she sees the rescuers as being sent by the God of Israel, the one who created her and chose her. It's not the young spies at that point that came to her house by accident. She was rescued. She was redeemed. Her life was transformed, and she became a part of the family tree of Christ. This is the history of God's holy rescue of the people of God that floods the mind of the believer. These are the moments throughout church history that we learn of those who are faced with the silence of God in the most terrifying of times, and yet they remember the faithfulness of God himself, and therefore they rest in that truth over every other truth. To remember Polycarp, the disciple of the Apostle John, when he was put on trial in Smyrna, and he confessed that he had served Jesus Christ for many years and had no intention of abandoning his faith. The judge offered him what was the custom of the imperial authorities of the time to deny Christ, to blaspheme him, and light incense in honor of our gods, and you shall live. But Polycarp didn't want to live, at least not according to the pagan rules. He wanted to embrace eternal life that awaited him for his suffering on earth. And so he rejected the proposal that was given him. And instead, the brave old man said, for 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? He remembered the goodness of God. He remembered the goodness of God's salvation. He remembered the goodness of God's holiness and that sustained him through the flames. This is the heart of David. This is the heart of David's prayer. When God is silent, when his voice is not heard, when the evidence in the here and now denies that God is and that God cares and that God rescues, then David remembers the fathers. He remembers the fathers whom God rescued because they trusted in him. You know, it's impossible for me to read these words and not personalize it to myself. My family, of course, knows, and some of you as well know, that though David is speaking of the fathers of Israel's past, I think of my father and my God's miraculous rescue that I've mentioned many times in sermons here. Recently, there have been a series of films released that were taken during the battles of Saipan and Okinawa and Iwo Jima, where 75-year-old footage has been restored with color to those old black and white films where the young men by thousands are sent to the South Pacific and shown hitting the beaches and, and storming the fortresses and dying in aloneness. And in each of these segments, I have found myself, and I have seen them all, searching for my father, for a glimpse of his young face as these segments unfold, to see if I can see my father, who was the only survivor of his 12-man underwater demolition team who were tasked to secure the beaches of these islands before the sailors arrived, and who was there at 17 years of age when the flag was so famously risen 
and who was there when the enemy attacked and his foxhole was invaded and his faith was tested. I remember the stories he told us as young boys of how the Lord rescued him from certain death as tens of thousands of his friends died around him. And I pause and I think of how alone he must have felt and how abandoned he must have been, never thinking that he would return one day to this pretty girlfriend and marry her and be given four children, one of whom stands before you. Though Scripture never tells us, it's not impossible to think that our Lord Jesus thought of his father as well in this way on the cross. That knowing the Father's holiness and trusting in the Father's history past, that his heart would pause to be reassured that no matter what the outcome, no matter if the cup ever passed him by or not, that his Father was to be trusted and that his Father would never disappoint. And that brings us to another theme that moves in and out of the emotional logic of David's mind that grips his heart as he prays and this prayer unfolds. First, from the silence of God is realized to the salvation of God is remembered to now the solace of God is ridiculed. The solace of God is ridiculed. And you're going to see that with me in verses 6 through 8. David writes, but I am a worm and not a man a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They smack their lip. They wag their head saying, commit yourself to Yahweh. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him because he delights in him. It's here that David's heart swings yet again. And you're going to see this pattern all the way through. He complains, verses 1 and 2, but then he comforts himself, verses 3 through 5. He's going to complain again in verses 6 through 8, but he's going to comfort himself in verses 9 and 10. And then he complains once more, and then he mixes prayers with complaints, and he complains yet again of the power and the rage of the enemies in verses 12, 13, 16, and 18. He complains about his own bodily weakness and decay, as we shall see in 14, 15, and 17. But he prays God would not be far from him and that he would save and deliver him. The emotional logic of one in this kind of suffering for a believer is, is unfathomable. The kind of emotional journey that David patterns for us here is also so important. So he goes from remembering the salvation that has brought him so much comfort in the past to recognizing in very sharp contrast between the two, the hateful crowd before him in the here and now. He thinks of the past and the fathers and how God has rescued, and now he sets his attention on the crowd that is grumbling and mocking him in the present. He swings from remembering the comfort of how the fathers trusted and were granted escape to now being thrust back to the cynical jeers of the scornful in the present moment of his suffering. And the reason they jeer and the reason they taunt, verse 8, is that David has told his people that his God delights in him. That's the source of their mockery. My God delights in me. 
The same God who has forsaken him is the same God who has left him to the hisses of the herd. They mock him in his solace, in his consolation. They enjoy the fact that God delights in him, that literally God is finds pleasure in him, that he is God's treasure, that he is, some translations, God's jewel. And so they can mock because look at the pitifulness of his estate. David's confidence in being a delight to God becomes the furnace of his enemy's fury. So they mock him because they so desperately wish that God would never deliver him and prove that this God in whom David trusts is an illusion or best, a liar. And though we aren't told that the Lord Jesus prayed this portion of Psalm 22, we do know that verses 7 and 8 are alluded to in Matthew 27, 39, Matthew 27, 43, and Mark 15, 29. Matthew 27, 39, and those passing by were blaspheming him, shaking their heads. Matthew 27, 43, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. So clearly by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writers of the gospel accounts saw the clear connection between what Jesus cried out in verse 1 of Psalm 22 and the surrounding antagonism that's spoken of him here in the verses we're studying. To be sure, Isaiah 53, 2 and 3 tells us that he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. We did not esteem him. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, endured the cross and despise the shame, for the joy set before him was greater than the shame around him. We are never told, as some strange teachers teach, that Jesus considered himself a worm and not a man, as verse 6 states, but clearly that is the heart of David. David in the pit of despair. That The same man... David, who penned the words of Psalm 8, what is man that you remember him and the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the angels and you crown him with glory and majesty. That same David now in his darkest hour is tempted to see his life as those around him see it, insignificant, small, worthless, a worm. By the way, this is not a call to self-esteem. This is not an incentive for the believer to reject the abuses of the culture and then assert his moral superiority. No, this is a call to right thinking when the, the world has gone mad and to never allow the ridicule of the mob to destroy the solace of the master. That brings us to the next theme that moves in and out of this emotional logic in David's mind. The next theme that grips his heart as this prayer unfolds. 
First, he prays that the silence of God is realized and the salvation of God is remembered to the souls of God is ridiculed. And now, fourthly, the story of God is recited. The story of God is recited. And we're going to see this in verses 9 and 10. Yet you are he who brought me out of the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. What a beautiful thought in the midst of such horrible times that instead of allowing the ridicule of the rioters to consume him, David's mind shifts back to the story of God in his life. And so he recites these truths to himself over and over again. And I say this is the story of God in his life because that's the emphasis of the verses here. Verse 9, you are he, you made me. Upon you, verse 10, I was cast. You have been my God. You see, the accomplishments of David are not the source of comfort. The, the acts of his own valor, the, the acts of his own bravery and strength in his own life do nothing to raise the head out of despair and encourage his heart. No, when push comes to shove, believer, and life and death lies before you, it's never what we have done that soothes the heart. But it's what God has done that makes all the difference. It can never be said that on that dying day upon your bed or when the authorities force you into prison for serving God or when your children are murdered for attending a Christian school that holds to God's view of gender and design that your greatest consolation lies in anything you have ever done. But the greatest comfort always arises from the practice of reciting over and over again the greatness of God's providential care in the most precious moments of life. And in this case, the nurturing moments of birth and infancy. David says, verse 9, Literally, it was God who brought me, or better, pushed me out of my mother's womb. He pushed you out. It was time. And from the time of my birth, David says, I was brought up and raised to trust in him. Again, there's no evidence that the Lord Jesus Christ prayed these things as David did, but certainly those things were true of Jesus. Jesus, too, trusted the breast of his mother. He was granted a trust in her love and support and nourishment that God alone can create. Before logic is formed, before evidence is gathered, an infant is welded to his mother for life. And that is as much an act of God as is the miracle of birth itself. No one's birth was as miraculous as Jesus' birth. Born of the Holy Spirit, planted into the womb of a virgin, there was a trust and a love that defies explanation. Mary knew Jesus better than anyone, perhaps better than anyone else ever would. Before Christ was born, Gabriel informed her that he would be no ordinary person, 
she would give birth to the Son of God. And so Mary pondered the future glory of her son. She had seen visions, heard the angels, witnessed his remarkable development. And Luke 2, 19 and 51 says, Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. But here, David is contemplating his own birth. And he says and recites these wonders to himself as the rejection of men come to be painful. He says these things to himself to re-incentivize himself, to, to make himself aware again it's time to trust the Lord, that the Lord will rescue. Many people have noticed that while we do not know mother, uh, David's mother's name for certain, we do know that David took care of his mother when he was running for his life from Saul. He went to the king of Moab and asked him to allow his parents to stay with him for safety, and the king agreed. We also have an indication that David's mother was a godly woman who influenced him to be godly himself. And I say that because David's traditionally considered to be the author of Psalm 86. And in that psalm, he says to the Lord, I serve you just as my mother, your handmaiden, did. So these thoughts console his heart in the emotional roller coaster of Psalm 22, which brings us to the final theme for us today that demonstrates the movement of David's emotional logic in the time of pain. The next theme that grips his heart as the prayer unfolds. First, the silence of God is realized. Then the salvation of God is remembered. The solace of God is ridiculed. The story of God is recited. And lastly, for this morning, we see the largest section before us in the text. The sovereignty of God is rehearsed. The sovereignty of God is rehearsed. And we see that in verses 11 through 18. Let me read them and then we'll set the stage. Be not far from me, for distress is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a lion that tears and roars. I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot sheared, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, clearly, as I read that out loud to you, you realize so much of what I just said and that is recorded here is seen as messianic and prophetic. And other than verse 1, these verses are the reason that some would say that this psalm is completely devoted to Jesus Christ and not David at all. It was C.I. Schofield in his study Bible that noted that Psalm 22 is a graphic picture of death by crucifixion. And this is what he writes. The bones of the hands, arms, and shoulders and pelvis are out of joint, verse 14. The profuse perspiration that caused by intense suffering, verse 14. The action of the heart affected, verse 14. Strength exhausted and extreme thirst, verse 15. Hands and feet pierced, verse 16. Partial nudity with the hurt to modesty, verse 17, are all associated with that mode of death, meaning crucifixion. 
And then he says, the accompanying circumstances are precisely those fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ. The desolate cry of verse 1, the periods of light and darkness in verse 2, the humiliating treatment of verses 6 through 8 and 12 through 13, the casting lots in verse 18, were all literally fulfilled. When it is remembered that crucifixion was a Roman, not Jewish form of execution, the proof of inspiration is irresistible, end quote. True. Verse 18, as we shall see, is quoted in John 19, 24. It is also alluded to in Matthew 27, 35, Mark 15, 24, Luke 23, 34. Clearly, it is almost impossible for a new covenant believer in Jesus Christ to deny the uncanny and profoundly striking similarities here between these words and the events of our Lord's crucifixion. And there is no question that these events are speaking of Christ. As the New Testament authors have clearly shown us, there is no doubt that these verses paint the picture of our Lord's passion in inexplicable ways. But the comparisons noted all throughout this section of bulls and lions and dogs are clearly not literal creatures that David is speaking of. As if to say that this section speaks of a time when David was confronted by animals of the wilderness and not human accusers. Now, David is writing in such a way to give us an impression of the magnitude of how his distress is felt. And therefore, because this is the way he describes these events, it goes to say that the other ideas expressed here, such as being poured out by water, all of his bones being out of joint, not to mention his hands and feet being pierced, could also be images of the distress that David felt, not the literalness of what is understood when it comes to Christ. To say it another way, though the imagery of all these descriptions point to Christ eventually, they still can point to David originally because of the latitude given to us by the way David writes. So instead of casting off the original intention of David as being only prophetic or messianic because there's no record of episode, anything like this in Scripture that speaks of David as possessing these characteristics literally, we can now see in the way he writes as an invitation to see these words as being part of David's experience before they were attached to the Lord Jesus. That's why I've titled this theme, The Sovereignty of God is Being Rehearsed. And the reason is that David is zooming in and out of focus with both complaints and comforts. It's here that we see David appealing to the complete control of God over his physical state in verse 15b, when he says, you lay me in the dust of death. You are the one who does that. You, O God, lay me down. This entire section outlines his crisis, the ongoing pictures of being surrounded by opposition, of seeing their words as being hurtful to him, of seeing his physical life completely emaciated and weakened by the attacks. All of this are under the theme of God being the one who's done this. In the same way that Jesus was suffering on the cross by the hands of wicked men, ultimately it was God the Father who was laying the Messiah in the grave. So in this greatest of trials, David calls upon his seemingly distant Savior 
to come near and then list off all the ways that God's sovereign hand has led him thus far through the appointed hardships that he lists. He feels himself, verse 12, surrounded by bulls. He feels himself as if these men are brutes who are fixed to destroy him. He paints the picture by saying, interestingly, that the bulls open, in verse 13, wide their mouths, and then he changes the imagery as a lion that tears and roars. Again, this is experiential and and symbolic. This vulnerability is highlighted by saying he feels, verse 14, as if he's being poured out, as if he's being drained, if you will, of his soul. It's as if all of his bones are out of joint, he says. Though the cross of Christ was more than capable to dislodge the bone sockets of the Lord as he hung there, the idea, this idea, does not contradict what Scripture says when it tells us not one of his bones were broken. Yet again, though literally true of our Savior, what is not presented as literal, it is inserted here as another way to express David's despair. Just like verse 14b, where David writes, his heart is like wax melted within him as a way to express his fear and his weakness. Those who think of Calvary only here think of the spear that struck our Lord's side when the blood and water gushed forth as a sign that his heart had been ruptured and Christ's heart having melted. Verse 15, he is dehydrated. He is devoid of life-sustaining water. He is dried up. His tongue is fixed to his jaw. Whether literally or figuratively, the idea is the same. He sounds like Job, doesn't he? As Job recounts in Job 30, verses 16 through 23, the plight of his own suffering. Verse 15b, you, O God, You lay me in the dust. This is David's poetic way of saying, you have drained me, you have poured me out, you have allowed life to be leaving me. And then in verse 16, we see a very striking thought, a section of Psalm 22 that most Christians see as the indisputable link of our Lord's crucifixion. Though this verse is very difficult to grasp in the Hebrew, Hebrew, it's a word, the word pierced, even can be substituted as dogs tearing my limbs. We'll speak more of that as time goes on. Verse 17, whether David is physically anorexic or sees himself as a skeleton, they can count all my bones. He then transitions, verse 18, to a universal illusion that the gospel writers clearly understood that were inspired, that those around him gamble for his garments. These are the evildoers who demoralize him and strip him. And yet David sees his condition as one God has accomplished. He doesn't condemn God for his predicament. He doesn't blame God or accuse God or wag his head at the silent Savior. In fact, here at the very base of this pit, at the very darkest point of the deep well of his pain, He is one verse away from declaring the most shocking transition we could ever have expected. Look at verse 21 at the end. You have answered me. You have answered me. 
we are going to see next Lord's Day that we switch from the crucifixion to the resurrection in one verse. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time that you have allotted for the scripture that's before us and for so many thoughts and so many inexplicable statements that should be made, must be made, but cannot be made in our time. We thank you for even a glimpse of the heart of our Lord and for a glimpse of the heart of David to whom Jesus looks forward and sees and takes in his own mouth as evidence of his own pain. Thank you for the mysteries of prophecy. Thank you for the mysteries of the Messiah. And thank you for the clarity of the scripture we have before us. Keep us together and safe and sound until we come back again next Lord's Day to celebrate the resurrection of the Son of God, in whose name we pray, amen.